0: So thank you, Uh, that was a very enlightening presentation, I enjoyed the panel discussion. It's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, who's one of my fellow Emory faculty, although she's been here significantly longer than I, Dr. Kimberly Warkowski, who's a professor of medicine at Emory, is an expert in sexually transmitted infections and also in hepatitis C and HIV, and she's going to talk to us today, give us an update on the well-controlled, (laughs) low-level problems we're having with STIs. Kim.
1: Thanks, Jeff, and I thank Susan for giving me an extra five minutes. Uh, So I'm gonna talk uh, very quickly, and if my, um, my voice cracks, it's because I have this horrible upper respiratory tract infection. I hope I don't lose my voice. Um, We all know that um, STIs are on the rise. Um, We see them frequently um, in our clinic. This is the latest data from the CDC showing the actual numbers and what's there in blue is the percent increase. So we know that this is the fifth year in a row that we've had um, increase in STIs both in syphilis, gonorrhea, um, and chlamydia. Um, and that's regardless of um, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, 102% increase in gonorrhea over five years and a 40% increase in females. Um, In syphilis, again, what's different with syphilis now, we all knew that there was an increase in men who have sex with men, but over the last couple years, there's been a dramatic increase in syphilis in women. Um, As you can see, there are 132% increase. And, uh, and we think we know why in terms of some of this, and this is associated with the intersection with the opioid epidemic, um, and the intersection of meth and heroin use. Um, so this is a um, new finding that just came out in the MMWR showing this intersection of the drug use and those of you that have um, dealt with this before in the late 90s with the crack cocaine epidemic, it was the same thing. We saw this increase in women and then associated, followed by this increase in congenital syphilis for the first time um, that there's been such a dramatic increase over every year. And those of you that live in Atlanta, were in the top 10 in terms of number of cases of um, congenital syphilis here in Atlanta. So it's affecting not only men who have sex with men, women, and also men who have sex with women. What about in our HIV-infected patients? This is a surveillance um, study that's done by the CDC and it looks at 12, um, about 10 to 12 health departments around the country. Um, And it looks at um, the data in terms of HIV negative versus HIV positive. Um, individuals, and not a not a surprise that um, there's an increase in HIV infected individuals in these three STIs. Susan already showed this. This is the meta analysis, and I just wanted to show some information on PrEP. Um, but what I what I think is really important is the the significant increases in these STIs, and you can see the odds ratios there. Um, And this is really in multiple studies now associated with um, the use of PrEP. But it's not just decreased condom use. This was a study that was presented at CROI last year um, showing in a community demonstration project in New York City, demonstrating that it's not really decrease in condom use. It's actually um, the partners number of partners and the partners that uh, are being chosen that's associated with this increase in STI. What should we be doing in terms of our patients that come into care um, initially when they come in and for follow-up? So at initial visit, what you should be doing is site-specific screening in. Um, men who have sex with men. People also ask about what? what's about doing this in women. We just don't have the data. We're accumulating some data um, in women, but we just don't have the data. I'll show you some intriguing data when we get to um, gonorrhea about um, the incidence in women. Screening for hepatitis A, B, and C. Trichomonas testing at intake. Now that we have nucleic acid amplification test, you can combine it with your chlamydia and gonorrhea test syphilis serology, and then depending on the risk, every time your patient comes in, um, some of my patients, are they know what questions I'm going to ask, and they said, yep, I'm ready to be swabbed. So they already know, or in instances where I'm only seeing them every six months, they have orders to come in and do self-swabs every three months. So there's a standing order for an RPR to come in every three months, um, and then they're coming in and doing their own rectal and pharyngeal self-swabbing. And then remember, those that continue to engage in high-risk behavior, um, the importance of getting the partner um, involved and also having a link to mental health services, especially in somebody that has repeated STIs. Um, My my top person um, was um, 30 episodes of gonorrhea in a year. That was referred to me because they thought he had drug-resistant gonorrhea, but he was actually he was actually serving as an escort to pay for his college. So the, the issue is these things happen, and you have to figure out if something's happening at that frequency to figure out why and trying how to intervene. So we'll start with syphilis. Um, there's two epidemics of syphilis now. There's um, the epidemic that we're seeing that I mentioned in men who have sex with men, and then the epidemic in heterosexuals. The difficulty is trying to sort this out from a public health standpoint. Um, We've had a a pretty good track record of trying to help in the um, heterosexual epidemic with the use of partner services, contract tracing, community outreach, taking vans and doing RPRs in the community. It's been a little bit more difficult in the MSM population um, and also the, the potential problem here that happens a lot in, um, in the south, and in particular in Atlanta, is the bridging. Um, the individuals that bridge between the MSM community and the heterosexual community. Uh, so the bisexuals that go back and forth between the two communities, so bridging syphilis back and forth. That's been very difficult from a public health standpoint. Um, So what are things that we can do to help mitigate that? And from my standpoint, I think one of the simplest things you can do besides asking the questions is routinizing RPR screening. Don't even ask anymore. I don't even care if somebody's been in a relationship for 12 years. They get an RPR every time they come in or every three months Um, because they may have a closed relationship, but then it becomes open. So the way to get away that is just routinize RPR screening. So how do we screen? Unfortunately, our testing um, hasn't changed in decades. We don't have a point of care test um, to be able to tell if somebody has syphilis. We miss syphilis a lot. Um, And what I put there on the left hand of the slide is the RPR sensitivity when somebody comes in for primary, secondary, early latent. Um, 30% false negative rate if somebody comes in with a shanker that they're going to have an RPR that's non-reactive. Um, And so what do we do? Um, The testing should also be an RPR along with a treponemal test. So you have your traditional algorithm where you may be screening with an RPR first and followed with a treponemal test. The issue is wherever you get your laboratory testing, if you see somebody with a chancre and their RPR is negative, you need to get a treponemal test at the same time, not waiting for your RPR because of this false negative rate. And the, RPR, the treponemal tests now that we have, the EIAs, the CIAs, um, the TPPAs, they're much more sensitive and specific to diagnose primary syphilis which is how the reverse sequence algorithm came about, which is screening for a treponemal test first, followed by an RPR. The difficulty with that is that it will pick up old infections, so you don't know whether it's old or new. So there's pros and cons for each of them, and it's a little bit challenging um, to do. There are some states um, that now um, mandate treponemal screening, Um, And there are some clinics that recommend treponemal screening. And the reason this came about because it's easier for the laboratory to do this automated treponemal test. The tests are more sensitive and specific, but there are problems with it. So this is a um, test with a lot of numbers. What What I wanted to tell you about with this is there's differences in the treponemal test you're ordering. The FTA-ABS, which a lot of you may still be using is a crappy test, we've known that for a long time, it should not be used. So if you're using an FTA-ABS, um, you should stop using it and use one of the newer generation treponemal tests, as I mentioned, a CIA, an EIA, um, or a TPPA. And this is just a recent article that talks about the differences in sensitivity and specificity of the test. Not all tests are perfect. And so it's important if you're really thinking about syphilis that you use the best treponemal test that's available. So nice pictures to brighten up your afternoon. Um, So we have on the left pictures of primary syphilis. I, after have been doing this for decades, am still amazed by the various presentations that syphilis can present. Um, You'll see there the vulvar lesion, the penile lesion, the lesion on the mouth, and the the finger lesion. Um, there are lesions that th- this can, it can be anything. Anything on the skin can be syphilis. Um, I continue, I, I can be amazed all the time about, with this disease. Secondary disease, I have patients more than not that don't have spots on their hands and their feet, um, that they've got one little lesion, they've got a macular lesion on their scrotum, or w- the last one I saw was two little lesions on the scrotum and one, one little macula on, on the glands. Nothing anywhere else. Secondary syphilis RPR 1 to 256. So again, it's all over the place. On the top um, picture is a is a um, the the rash on the face is a picture of somebody with Louis' maligna, um, which is um, a condition that can the other name for it is ulcerative ulcerative malignant syphilis. And um, in those individuals, you can be falsely um, negative on your RPR. Um, because you don't have enough antibody, um, I mean, you have too much antibody. You have to ask the lab to dilute your serum one to a hundred. Um, and the the one on the panel, the the gentleman that looks like Tinea versicolor down there, is an HIV patient with a CD4 count of one, who couldn't form um, a uh, immune response to make an RPR or a uh, treponemal antibody. So again, it's the full gamut, and. Um, it's, it's really an incredible presentation. And also to remind you that you can have neurologic manifestations at every stage of syphilis. So the questions about asking about the hearing loss, um, about headache, tinnitus is another big one that you should really um, be key on and also to do your good cranial nerve exam. The increase we're seeing in ocular syphilis over the last couple of years every part of the eye can be involved. What you see here in terms of the upper picture is you see an irregular iris. You see a hypopion, which is um, pus um, in the anterior chamber, and you see some ciliary injection. Um, It tends to occur more often in the secondary stage or late stage, and the serologic test may or may not be positive. You need to think about this I just had one of my patients who was in a relationship with a partner for 20 years who presented to an ophthalmologist um, with visual loss and headache, and this wasn't thought of. Um, Again, this is something you need to think about because the presentation can just be only in the eye, Um, and your test can be um, normal um, in an instance of ocular syphilis, so you really need to think about it. 30 to 40 percent of persons with ocular syphilis um, have a normal CSF exam. Does that mean that they don't have neurosyphilis? No, this is the eye is an extension of the brain. They need to be treated as neurosyphilis. But when you get your LP, don't be surprised if it's normal. How, when do we evaluate somebody? When do we LP somebody? Um, anybody with neurologic signs or symptoms, which I list there, tertiary disease, aortitis, gumma, or serologic treatment failure. However, whenever anybody gets infected with syphilis, remember it's like Lyme disease. You get dissemination of, of the treponeme, so it's in your CSF. Everybody that has syphilis, it's widely disseminated. Um, so just because you LP somebody with primary syphilis with no neurologic symptoms, you're gonna find it about a third of the time in their CSF. We don't know what that means. Um, we know that they may have CSF abnormalities, so they may have an elevated protein or glucose. That doesn't mean they have neurosyphilis. They have no symptoms. So neurosyphilis is a combination of CSF tests, your clinical exam, um, and a reactive RPR. Um, the other thing that I've been seeing a resurgence in is cardiovascular syphilis. The picture that you see there is a gentleman that was treated, HIV-positive gentleman that was treated for um, secondary syphilis 20 years ago and presented to his primary care visit with a heart murmur. And what you can see is there is the uh, fusiform um, ascending aorta. Um, and what happens is at the time that he was infected, he probably had involvement of his, um, his end arteritis obliterans, and it caused his obstruction of the vasovisorum, And over time, he developed this thoracic aneurysm. Um, So if you see an ascending um, aortic aneurysm, always think of syphilis. Um, And surgical evaluation for those that have a diameter greater than 5.5. So again, think about this. This is even years after adequate treatment. How do we treat syphilis um, in an HIV-infected patient with secondary syphilis? How many people, raise your hand if you treat with a single shot. How many use three shots? So there's controversy about this. The the recommendation from CDC is a single shot is adequate in HIV regardless of primary second regardless of whether you're HIV infected or not. There was a trial done in the 1970s that showed uh, that even giving enhanced therapy didn't make a difference. There are several observational studies that have been done that show there's no difference in one versus three. However, people still like to give three shots of benzathine, I think, to make themselves feel more comfortable, but there's no data. Because there's still lingering question, there is a RCT ongoing here in the United States. We're a site um, at Emory where we're, we're doing, looking at early syphilis, um, looking at one versus three shots to answer this question definitively. Are there alternatives to penicillin? Um, Doxycycline works. Um, We don't have as much data on neurosyphilis. Ceftriaxone works as well, but we don't have information on how long you need to treat um, and what dose is optimal. And then what about the use of STI PrEP? So this came out of using um, some of the PrEP studies using doxycycline um, as PrEP against syphilis. So it shows it works. It works for both syphilis and chlamydia but because of the problems of gonorrhea having about 30 to 40% tetracycline resistance, we are nervous about this as a, as a potential um, use of um, antibiotics until it's more well studied. So let's move on to urethritis and cervicitis. I can't hit all these bugs, but I can tell you about what's important in terms of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and the, the new kid on the block, mycoplasma genitalium. About a the third of the time when somebody comes in with a drip or urethritis, um, we don't know what the pathogen is. So for chlamydia, what's important? Um, this is the, the typical LGV presentation. We know it can cause cervicitis and proctitis, um, but this is LGV caused by some of the serovars of chlamydia uh, 1, 2, and 3 that can cause penile ulcers, um, can cause buboes and... Um, uh, in some instances, it can cause proctitis. And this is the way that these, are, these infections are presenting now. Rectal discharge, tenismus, what you're seeing there on the right is a colonoscopy um, with multiple um, ulcers there and bleeding friable tissue. In somebody that comes in with symptoms um, of discharge tenismus, You're going to put a nucleic acid amplification swab into their rectum. If it comes back positive for um, chlamydia, um, you're suspicious that this is LGV, but you can't prove it because the genotyping takes weeks. So you're going to empirically treat them for three weeks for LGV. Um, There is some data from the UK that shorter course may work, but the CDC continues to recommend three weeks of doxycycline. And this was just a cluster that happened a couple of years ago in an HIV clinic. Um, 38 reports of LGV among MSM. And I bring this to your attention because of the number of concomitant infections associated with LGV and the presentation by penile ulcers, which a lot of us don't think about in terms of being caused by LGV what about the treatment controversy? The treatment controversy in chlamydia has to do with azithromycin versus doxy. And basically, the the difficulty here is there's been several retrospective studies and a meta-analysis showing that doxy appears to be more effective than azithromycin, especially in instances of symptomatic infection. However, because of this controversy, there are now three, go, three ongoing um, RCTs that are looking at this, UK, US, UK, um, and Australia, trying to answer the question, which is a better drug? What do I do? Um, now, in instances for even asymptomatic chlamydia, I'm not trusting azithromycin, and I'm going right to doxycycline, so I give everybody doxycycline. Um, and then remember, you need to retest um, in three months after infection because of the high risk of reinfection. I know I'm going fast, um, but there's a lot of bugs here and very interesting. Um, so this is, I don't know why this is coming up weird, but this is a, this is a lady um, that I saw. This is a presentation of gonorrhea, um, which you may not have seen. A uh, 23-year-old female, gravida 4, para 1, who is 28 weeks pregnant, who came in with ankle swelling, pain, migratory polyarthritis, and a skin lesion on her left finger. So you're thinking that this may be disseminated gonorrhea. How would you diagnose her? And I can tell you the reason I was asked to see this patient was because um, of a a completely different reason. Gonorrhea did not even come up in the thought process. Uh, It didn't come up. Okay, joint aspiration. Um, So the joint aspiration yield is less than 30%. Um, In this lady, so she actually was taken to the OR and found pus um, in her joint and nothing grew So how did we prove that this lady had gonorrhea? The the greatest yield for the diagnosis of DGI is actually a mucosal swab, so we did a mucosal swab of her um, uh, vagina which showed um, gonorrhea So the blood culture lesion aspirate and joint aspirate is not sensitive So this is estimated to occur very uncommonly, but we're seeing more and more of it in terms of the presentation. So I wanted to remind you about the two presentations, either our monoarticular arthritis or the skin lesions, which are particular pustule lesions, usually on the distal extremities plus polyarthralgias. Rarely it can cause perihepatitis, meningitis and endocarditis. Um, and the way you diagnose it is a, this clinical diagnosis with supportive mucosal evidence like what we did, what we found in this patient. Older literature basically said we normally found it in pregnant women like I, that patient I just saw six months ago and in women right around the time of menses. But the epidemiology is changing. And what we're seeing, I heard about this about two years ago, I heard about six cases in one month in Atlanta. So I talked to some of my colleagues um, and there's a surveillance system that has now been set up in Georgia and California looking for this. Um, And it was set up within an existing uh, surveillance um, epi infrastructure looking at other invasive infections. And what was found uh, was 52 cases and the demographics are totally different. And um, what we're seeing it is mostly in men um, and mostly in older men of 16% in MSM and about 12% HIV infected patients. The graph there on your, uh, the table on your right is actually what was described in France about four years ago showing the same thing, that the demographics are now shifting. So again, to remind you about the gonorrhea kind of DGI presentation. So the biggest concern with gonorrhea right now is antimicrobial resistance. It's a very smart bug over the past several decades. It's developed mechanisms to defeat everything we've thrown at it. Um, And right now, there's only one class of antibiotics that are still effective against gonorrhea, and that's the cephalosporins. A couple of years ago, azithromycin was added as a co-treatment to try to see if if the increased resistance could be mitigated. Um, But now I'll show you the consequence of that, what's happening. So over time, for the past 10 years, what's happening um, is that the ceftriaxone increase that you can see that started around 2009 has been going down, but azithromycin has been, resistance has been going up dramatically. And this is especially marked in men who have sex with men, although it's very different in different parts of the country, depending on where this kind of these strains are circulating. So now there's um, a concern about what we're doing with use of this dual treatment. The other concern, we don't have much data in terms of women, as I mentioned before. Most of the data that that we've been um, doing through surveillance is really um, has really been focused on men um, for a variety of different reasons. But not, right now, what we're seeing in women, this was a study that was just presented at ID Week showing. Pharyngeal um, samples, a high degree of azithromycin resistance. So um, in a couple of months, the CDC will be holding a panel um, that will be making some decisions about what we're going to be doing going forward um, for gonorrhea treatment. I can tell you that gonorrhea treatment is very different depending on where you live in the world. Here, the CDC continues to recommend azithromycin plus ceftriaxone, United Kingdom in the last several months, have taken azithromycin away and have increased their dosing to one gram. Um, the Europeans and Australia's are also um, gone up to 500 milligrams. So this is, continues to evolve. The other things as we try to make these decisions going forward, the thing that's difficult is we now have to really think about the extra genital burden. What, how do the, the pharmacokinetics of these drugs differ at different anatomical sites? What about the burden of of, um, organisms that you find? So there's a lot of different things that you have to think about when you're trying to design drugs. Um, We have several new novel agents, um, Zotaflodacin and Jeptacitcin. You have to have an advanced degree to pronounce these drugs. Um, There's pluses and minuses. The phase two studies look intriguing, but again, we have minimal data at the throat and the rectum um, both of these drugs are now going into Phase three trials, so more data to come. Um, the other thing about treatment failures, if you have a treatment failure, remember, your NATs can't show you um, can't show you um, your antibiogram, you need to get a culture. Do you know where to get a culture plate? If you're in practice, do you know if you're in an academic center, do you know where to get a culture plate? Will your academic center do actual susceptibility testing? <coughs> So, think about this, because this is coming soon. However, most of these treatment failures are really due to reinfections, not due to treatment failure. We have not had a documented case of treatment failure here um, in the US. However, um, gonorrhea treatment um, is running out. Um, This is just to show, you may have heard about the two strains of the last couple of years that are resistant to both ceftriaxone (coughs) and ertapenem, I mean um, azithromycin. So how did they treat that strain in the UK that just came out? You know how they treated that strain? Erdapenem for three days. How'd they come up with that? It looks good in vitro. How'd you come up with three days? When you talk to them, we don't know. We just thought it might be good. So, again, <laughs> it, the, the issue is this is coming. Um, this, this is coming. It's here. Um, it's presently being worked on. Um, but it is a big concern. I'm going to end on this because it looks like I'm at th- i I'm sorry I don't have a chance to talk to, about HPV. Um, but maybe we can get it to, to that in the question and answers. I wanted to let you know about this organism and why it's important. Um, it causes about 25% of male urethritis. Um, we don't have a good number yet on cervicitis in women, maybe about um, anywhere from 10 to 20%. But it's actually more common than chlamydia when you look at, po- at population-based um, surveys. So why is this important? Um, because there is now finally a diagnostic test available for it. It just became available the last couple of months. How are you gonna use it? Who should we use it in? Is there recommendations for screening? There are not recommendations for screening of this. Um, This is how I would use this test, is in instances for for men and women that have persistent symptoms after routine treatment, persistent cervicitis or urethritis, or in instances of recalcitrant PID or proctitis. I told you my voice was going to go. There's also an association with um, acquisition and transmission of HIV infection, so that's another reason we need to know about this organism. This is a really interesting um, organism that can cause a lot of problems. I mentioned the most data we have is male urethritis, um, but it's also very um, concerning in terms of its effect on um, women, PID, preterm delivery, spontaneous abortion, and infertility. So this is the problem, it's the the test is now available, how do we treat it? Um, This, as you can see with the the graph down below, (coughs) thank you, um, that the effectiveness of antibiotics has waned over the past um, 10 years. But let me tell you something that's a little weird. So you can see the effectiveness of doxy is not good. It's about 30%. Azithromycin has gone from the 80s um, down to the 40s. Um, and what I list there for you with the map of Europe is because what Europe has done in some countries is they've switched from using azithromycin to doxy initially for patients that present with cervicitis and urethritis, and what's happened is their incidence of antimicrobial resistance has gone down even though doxy uh, is not that effective. Um, And so it's kind of counterintuitive, but the thought is that the doxy may be um, effective enough to reduce the bacterial burden, and then you give another drug on top of it to kind of kill the bug. Um, What do we know about the resistance here in the U.S.? We know that azithromycin resistance is about 50%. Moxifloxacin is the only quinolone that works effectively. The only other one is not available here in the U.S., and that's cidofloxacin. Um, so there are some investigational agents being looked at, but this is a problem with resistant cervicitis and um, uh, urethritis. <clears throat> so what the, um, our Scandinavian colleagues have done, and also this test is available in Australia, because of the emergence of resistance to this organism, um, there's a diagnostic test that that folks are using at the point of care. Wouldn't that be lovely to have here, that you can have a patient that presents with um, urethritis or cervicitis, you can make the diagnosis at the point of care, Um, and then you can do a resistance test at the same time to tell you which drug to use. Kind of novel concept. Um, so now we have a diagnostic test, but we're still a little bit perplexed on the best treatment to use. So the intri- there, there is a test available, it's just not here in the U.S., that can help you at the point of care. So this is kind of hopefully what's, co- that we hopefully will be able to have sometime in the future here in the United States. But you can see by looking at this algorithm, um, is by doing this and following this algorithm, look at the cure rates, pretty dramatic. Um, and so this is my last slide that I'm just going to mention because I don't have time to get to HPV. Um, is just I want to mention and not forget the other um, non-traditional STIs to think about, um, and that's the the STIs that can be transmitted through the fecal oral route. Um, in particular, Shigella, um, Shigella, Campylobacter, Salmonella, fecal oral transmission, um, and the intercontinental spread of antimicrobial-resistant um, Shigella continues to be a concern. Neisseria meningitidis urethritis, you may have heard of this as well. Um, there was um, a, several cities around the United States that had um, a problem, and it was really not an MSM, it was an MS, uh, it was M- MSW having a problem with urethritis due to um, Neisseria meningitidis. And then Zika virus, um, which we don't have time to get into, the evolving understanding of the persistence um, in the semen. And th- what I put down there is, I think, um, kind of the key points of, from a pre- recent presentation on sexual transmission of Zika virus. So it's non-traditional, but it's something we should, um, we should still know about. Um, so I think that's the end, that my time is up. Um, and I'll be happy to answer any questions. <laughs> if my voice is, if my voice can still last.
0: Thanks, Kimberly. And you know, since these questions do come up, is six months after Zika exposure really necessary to protect against transmission before you know trying to become pregnant?
1: Okay, sorry, say again, Jeff?
0: So, based on the latest data, do you really need to wait six months after being in a Zika endemic area before you have a planned pregnancy? No,
1: I think the, the issue that's recently come out was showing that the majority of people it's actually gone within a month. But the recommendations are still to wait for six months. Um, this question is um, injection one versus three, does it matter how old the infection is? Um, so I think that the issue is one versus three, what I was talking about was really for early infection. That's primary, secondary, and early latent. So we're not talking about late latent. That was only that, that RCT is only on early, for only early infection. Um, so that's just to clarify, maybe I didn't say that. So it's really only for early infection. For the, the recommendations haven't changed for late latent infection, which is still three weekly shots. Um, the question that we always get to is, what happens if it come, falls on a weekend and patient can't come in to get their benzathine? Um, what, it, what do we know about that? And we get, the, the leeway is actually seven to 10 days unless you're pregnant. Um, and then the problem really is the increased volume of distribution with pregnancy. And the, um, the, it really has to be within that interval. In fact, some of the older data shows um, that the levels go down quicker. Um, and so it, they really need to be on that schedule of the Q7 days.
0: So I'm gonna try and group some of these questions together. So first, <coughs> neurosyphilis, you mentioned, you know, looking for neurologic signs and symptoms, et cetera. But what about people who are asymptomatic? Is there any RPR cutoff or anything else that would make you wanna do an LP?
1: Yeah, that's the, that's the real controversial question. There was some data That showed a CD4 count less than 350 and an RPR um, greater than um, 32 is associated with some increase in CSF abnormalities. But again, when you look at that older data, there's a mix of symptomatic and asymptomatic patients when you critically look at the data. Um, I would say most of the syphilis experts do not um, agree with um, that kind of interpretation that people need to be LP'd. So people that call me when, that, when they LP somebody and they find 10 cells in the CSF, I say, why did you LP them? And they don't have an answer. The person was completely normal. So the recommendation really is signs and symptoms. There is not any data that shows a protein of 10 and a cell count of 20 in your CSF if it um, leads to any increased risk of having neurosyphilis.
0: So continuing along with syphilis, um, if you're using doxycycline for latent syphilis, do you treat any longer or do you, how long do you treat?
1: So for primary, if you're using doxycycline, primary, secondary, early latent should be two weeks. Late latent should be um, four weeks. Um, People, something that's come up recently which is interesting is the UK actually uses doxycycline in instances of, um, in neurosyphilis. I am not advocating this because we don't have enough data, but they're using 200, it's in their guidelines as an alternative of 200 milligrams. Um, twice a day of doxycycline, and most people can't even tolerate doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day. It makes a lot of people sick and nauseated. So I'm just bringing that up. So there is a distinction, early syphilis versus late for the doxycycline.
0: So everything old is new again, because that was from <laughs> the 80's, the 200, twice daily. So um, when do you determine that somebody's been treated? There are RPRs responding, but they become serofast. Uh, when do you stop, like doing other evaluations? That's a great about question. We don't know.
1: That's why when you read the treatment guidelines, it's vague, and uh, it's vague for a reason. And it's really hard. I think I see Wendy here. Wendy called me about a patient that she had that was zero fast at 1 two, 256 for what, two or three years? Um, and so it's your level of comfort and your stomach, right, in terms of what you feel comfortable with. Remember, it's a lab test. Um, and so if, you're, if you've got a patient that has frequent sex, you're not gonna know, uh, it, frequent unprotected sex, you're not gonna know whether they're uh, infected or not. So you're gonna have to make a judgment call. I can't tell you any data um, in terms of that. The only data that we really have is the Bob Rolf study that was done in 1997, the one I mentioned before that used enhanced therapy for syphilis. And what we know is that 15 to 20% of people stay, remain serofast um, at 12, um, 12 months. And if you're HIV infected, um, you're, it takes you longer to come down. Your RPR comes, comes down, and it really depends on what stage you are. If you have a high titer, it tends to go down more quickly. But again, it also depends on your host response. So I'm being vague for a reason, because it, it's hard. It's so, really hard to make that decision. So if you're uncomfortable and you, like, have a, something in the pit of your stomach, run it by somebody else that has done this or seen this a lot to have some level of comfort. Wendy is extremely experienced, and she had she had stomach discomfort because she couldn't. It made her uncomfortable to look at that titer every time her patient came in. But sometimes you just have to, and I just said, it's. we went over it, and I said, it's okay. Just you know, calm down and, you know, it's okay. But again, if if you feel uncomfortable about it, there are people you can talk to. And what I didn't get to on my last slide, there is a warm line for STDs too. Through the National Network of um, um, Prevention Training Centers, you can talk to a person, you can submit your question, they'll get back to you in 24 hours. If, if you've got something that you feel a discomfort or call your local health department or call me, I don't care. I mean, I'll, I'll be happy to talk about something that you feel uncomfortable about because there's no right answer here. It's, it's just experience. It's kind of a feeling. You, got, you know your patient if they're, if they're doing things you're not comfortable with. If I don't know sometimes, I just say, hey, I don't know. You're getting a shot of benzathine. You know, you've been having 20 partners. I don't know if you've got a new infection or not. Um, so again, it's hard. It's really hard in some
0: instances. So let's try and cover some chlamydia questions real quickly. So for pharyngeal chlamydia, doxia, or azithro. We,
1: um, so we don't even know if it makes a difference in terms of the pharynx. We know there's about a 30% spontaneous, um, resolution, but the reason the pharynx is important is cause you can transmit to somebody's urethra or somebody else's genital orifice. So there, we don't have any data. Um, in terms of that question. It's a great question, but w- people are more concerned about the rectum um, because of its association with HIV acquisition and transmission. We don't have that data for the Pharynx for chlamydia.
0: For chlamydia, not talking about LGV for a minute, but for chlamydia, if you're going to use doxycycline, what dose do you give, and for how long?
1: Um, so for if I'm treating for regular chlamydia, it's 100 milligrams BID for seven days. If I'm concerned, um, that somebody's got potential LGV, it's 100 milligrams BID for 21 days.
0: For people that have gonorrhea and are allergic to cephalosporins, what do you recommend?
1: Um, first, I, I doubt that they're really truly allergic to cephalosporins. And again, I asked the history. You know, and most of them, oh, yeah, I had Keflex um, three months ago and I was fine. So again, it's making the taking the appropriate history, I think people are freaked out because they don't want somebody to have an allergic reaction. And so it's easier to go to the path of least resist- resistance. Um, so in most instances, if somebody says they have a pen allergy, um, the cross-reactivity rate that's reported in the literature is five to 10%. And in reality, it's probably less than 5%. So what are the alternatives if somebody's truly cephalosporin um, allergic? Would be um, that I would use is a um, shot of uh, gentamicin, 240 milligrams IM.
0: Great, I'm glad gent's making a comeback. So (laughs) it's
1: cheap too. It's only 11 cents.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So this person asks, why don't we use more oral cephalosporins for gonorrhea? What's the issue?
1: So one of the issues is the 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 reason um, in 2012. um, the reason that dual therapy was recommended um, was you can't get um, the levels in terms of the suffixing, which was recommended, you can't get the levels high enough Mm -hmm. um, in terms of extra genital tissues as well as um, urogenital tissues when the MIC started creeping. So it all has to do with PKPD. That was, the, that was the reason why. So the thought was when there was an MIC creep of the um, cephalosporins, thought is to using two, dru- two drugs with different mechanisms of action and thinking about um, volume of distribution and the peak level you can get, you're gonna get higher peaks when you use um, ceftriaxone than you are versus
0: suffixing. All right, well, thank you very much. There are are several unanswered questions, and I think it shows you the value of the warm line that uh, Kim was talking about and the value of having her home cell phone number.